Last week, we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13 says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you, re- which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So this morning, Elspeth's going to come and read for us from 1 Thessalonians 2, and I want to remind us that it is the Word of God. The Word of God. So let's listen to it as the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you, face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word that we get to hear from this morning by the power of his spirit working in us. And I pray, and I have been praying for you, that this morning that this word would change us, that we would be pierced to the heart by God who is alive, and speaks to us through his word this morning. So, thanks, Matt, for giving me the springboard last week. (laughs) That was easy. (laughs) All right, well, in following up, this morning we get to really apply what we did learn last week from God's word. We get to actually dig in, look carefully, listen to what God is going to say, understand, apply, and hopefully be changed to be more like Jesus because of what we read this morning in God's word. Now, I'll be honest with you, this past week, as I read through this passage and was preparing to preach it, I kind of made myself up an outline and some, some truths that stood out to me, and I kept hitting just like a speed bump in one couple verses. And I would read through, and like, God, I don't really understand that. That doesn't really seem right. And I would just keep reading through and keep working on my message. And I feel like that speed bump is what God really wants us to focus on this morning. And so that's what we're going to do together. We're going to dig into God's Word, and there's a part in here that I think is it's kind of challenging. I think it's kind of hard for us to understand. And I think it's good for us to say, okay, Lord, this is your Word. This is inerrant. I desire to know you and understand you, so speak to us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. May we receive this as the Word of God and not just as the Word of man. May it be at work in us this morning. I hope that's what you desire as well. To start, what I want you to do is just look at the passage in front of you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 on, and I want you to consider 
what we just read this morning, but also what we've been reading about in 1 Thessalonians, what is Paul's attitude toward these believers? What's his emotions? What kind of feeling has he conveyed thus far in the passages as we've been reading them? And this is an interactive part, so actually I do want you to shout it out. How would you say Paul has addressed these Thessalonians? What's his feelings? Yeah. Love, desire to be with them. What we read this morning in verse 17, it feels more like a love letter than it does like just a strict teaching, doesn't it? But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. That sounds like someone who loves these people, doesn't it? Paul is affectionate, desiring them. And we talked about it before that Paul was probably only with this church for a matter of weeks as he was planning it, before he was forced out. So why does Paul want to be with them so much? Why is Paul so connected and so drawn? Why is he so affectionate? Why does he care so much for this church? It almost sounds like he's talking to a long-lost friend or a relative or someone that he's known for 20, 30, 50 years. But these are believers he only met for a few weeks. When I think about people that I've known for a few weeks, I'm not generally talking to them in the way that Paul does. So why does Paul talk like that? Well, thankfully, verse 19 and 20, Paul tells us exactly why he's talking that way. He defends, he explains, he describes why he wants to come see the first well, and second, all the Thessalonians. <laughs> he explains why he feels affection toward them. He's defending himself of why he hasn't been with them thus far, and he's basically showing them, giving them evidence for why he wants to visit them again. This is his proof. This is his backup, proving to them that he's not just not caring or he's not just far off, but that he desires to be with them. This is what he says in verse 19 and 20. Look at the passage with me. This is his defense. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's the speed bump for me. How can Paul say that these people are his glory and his joy? If we were singing and I came up to do the exhortation, I just put that one verse up there. For you are our joy and glory. And I said, church, so who's the you? You would probably all say, Jesus, God, the Spirit. But who's Paul actually saying is his joy and his glory? People, the Thessalonians, his disciples, the people that he shared the gospel with. So that's what I smacked into over and over and over and over and over again as I was preparing and reading through this passage. And I believe that because, by God's grace, what we studied last week, I believe that it was a help for me as I'm reading God's word that the Spirit reminded me, this is my word. It is inerrant. Don't skip over parts that are hard. Don't just say, oh, it's probably interpretation or something that doesn't quite mash up together. No, this is, this is God's Word that works perfectly in harmony with itself. That's good for us to be instructed and to be taught. And so this morning, I encourage you, come along, come along with me. Let me show you 
why this speed bump is good for us and why this is good for us to understand. Before we do that, just pray together because we need the Spirit's help. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us. I thank you that you are a God that likes to communicate to your children. I thank you that you don't leave us in our darkness, in our misunderstandings, in our lostness, but you patiently teach us, encourage us, comfort us, and bring us along. And this morning, God, we are asking you, by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, that you would teach us from your word, that you would change our hearts, that you would open our eyes and open our minds, help us to see you more clearly and to love you more because of that. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so what I'm going to do is we're just going to pick apart verses 19 and 20 this morning. And we're going to kind of chop it into two sections and just draw out, look at a couple other parts in Scripture where, where Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us and see if we can get some clarity, some understanding. Because Paul is not being heretical here, despite the fact that it kind of felt like that to me. Paul is not speaking heresy. He's speaking the very words of God. So let's understand it. The first part is what's the story with boasting? Paul says that the Thessalonians are his crown of boasting. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, boasting is a negative thing. It's bad to boast. You're not supposed to boast. We teach our kids not to boast. If I'm a person that boasts a lot, generally, I'm probably not liked very much because I'm talking about myself. I'm puffing myself up. I'm saying, oh, look at me. I'm so great. I'm boasting. So that's how I read it at first glance, when Paul says that he boasts in these Thessalonians. But what I did was I just took, well, let's look where Paul uses the term boasting in all of his letters. And he says it, I don't know, 30-some or more times. And you know what I found? This is interesting. Paul, more often than not, describes boasting as a positive thing. He really does. Take a look. More often than not, Paul describes boasting as positive, not just negative. And to explain this, I want to put up a couple passages up on the screen. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Okay, so if you love, you don't boast, right? Boasting is bad, okay? The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Boasting again. Don't do it. Don't boast in men. But then look at these passages. This is also Paul speaking. Next is from Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast, except, it's the important word, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul's saying, I'm not going to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then lastly, in 1 Corinthians 1, let the one who boasts, boast in who? In the Lord. All right, so from just that real quick survey, it's not boasting itself that is wrong or bad. 
It's whom we are boasting in, right? It's who's that boasting terminating? Is it making me, Tyler, us look good, puffed up, important, great? Or is it making Jesus look great, puffed up, great? Is it putting his work on display, his character, his attributes on display, or putting myself on display? That's why Paul can say, I boast in my weakness, because every time that Paul proclaims, my works are filthy rags, I don't have the words to speak, but God's speaking in me. He's saying, I can't, but Jesus can. I can't do something, but Jesus does do something. He's proclaiming who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's positive boasting. So boasting is not just negative, it is also a positive thing. And I think we have an understanding of this even in our culture and words today. I was thinking about this as an example. Just use the word brag because we say that a little bit more often. If I always brag about myself and how great of a dancer I am every time you see me, I would be really annoying to you probably. I'd say, oh man, well, Matt, you haven't seen me dance recently, have you? Boy, I am just the best dancer. I mean, the feet, the footwork, it's just, it comes from a lot of practice, a lot of rehearsing. I'm the best dancer around. And if I always said that to you and always puffed myself up like that, you wouldn't be able to stand me. And even, I think, generally, American culture, we would say, that's not good. Shouldn't do that. But if I said, let me brag about my sister. You know that she got a full ride to Towson as a swimmer, a Division I athlete, and got a nursing degree. You know she set multiple school records that still stand today, and she won her conference championship every single year that she swam for Towson. I'm bragging about my sister. I'm not bringing myself up. I'm just highlighting someone that I know and how great they are or some of their accomplishments. In the same way, when we boast in the Lord, we're highlighting his accomplishments. We are bragging about Jesus. We're proclaiming how great Jesus is. We're saying what Jesus has done. And so I think what Paul is doing is he's saying when Jesus returns, he is going to be bragging and boasting in Jesus' work in the Thessalonian church. He's saying, what else do I have to boast in, to brag about, other than to say, look at the way Jesus worked in these disciples. Look how I was able to take part in what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is accomplishing in these hearts. Paul already said, if he's going to boast, it's only going to be in his weakness and in the cross. So when he's boasting in the Thessalonians, he is saying, not Paul, Jesus did this in the Thessalonians. When Jesus comes, Paul is looking forward to wearing the crown, the victor's crown of saying, Jesus did all this. It's all him. He accomplished this. He worked in the hearts of the Thessalonians. Look again with me at verse 20. Verse 20, Paul says it succinctly and matter-of-factly, for you, Thessalonians, are our glory and joy. Glory and joy. This one, I think, is even a little bit harder. How can the Thessalonians be Paul's glory? Well, Paul talks about glory a little bit more in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to put this verse up. This was very helpful for me this week. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. By being saved through Jesus, by believing the gospel, we are able to take part in Jesus' glory. 
Our glory becomes the glory that Jesus has acquired through his death and resurrection. This is a crazy thing. It should blow our minds. So let's just park here for a moment. Just think with me. Jesus, by living, dying, rising again, has purchased for himself a people, a name that's magnificent, glory and honor to be proclaimed and magnified. And what does he do? He adopts us into his family, and he says, here, sit next to me. Take part in the glory that I have. Take part in my splendor. And so our glory, it's not glory in ourselves. It's glory in our Savior. It's glory that Jesus has purchased and freely given to us by the work on the cross. That's where our glory comes from. We get to take part in Jesus's glory. So if point number one is disciples are our crown of boasting, point number two, disciples are our glory. Disciples are our glory. Because we get to take part in Jesus' glory. And the disciples that Jesus has purchased are his glory. They're what make him look magnificent for what he has done. And I think joy is similar. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for, there's the word joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy of purchasing a church, a bride for himself, to redeem a people. That was Jesus' joy. That's what Jesus was looking forward to, when he endured the cross. And because Paul is united with Jesus, his heart has been transformed that what brings Jesus joy, that what Jesus loves, which is his people, is what Paul loves. Paul's joy is Jesus's joy. Paul's joy is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the ransomed sinners. It's the miraculous work of the gospel in people's hearts, transforming lives. That is what brings Paul joy. Disciples are our joy. Disciples are our crown of boasting. Disciples are our glory. And disciples are our joy. Let's just think what Jesus has done for a moment. Created people. Perfect. Made in his image. In his likeness to give him glory, to give him honor, to give him praise. And those people rejected him, sinned against him, turned their back and said, we don't want you to be our Lord, we want to be our own Lord. We want to be worshipped. We don't have the power to do so, we can't control anything, but we think that we're more strong and more powerful than you. We deserve glory and honor, and we reject you as our king. We shake our fist at you and say we hate you. And instead of smiting us and just wiping us off the face of the earth, Jesus, by the plan of the Father, made himself like one of us. He came to this earth for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He endured sin, being sinned against, walking on a dusty earth, living perfectly, but struggling, striving, suffering, being beaten, being tortured, being murdered by his own creation. 
And then he rose. Then he conquered sin and death. All a part of his plan for his glory and for his joy. How important to Jesus do you think redeeming a people is? Saving us as sinners. How high of a priority do you think it is to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to save sinners? To rejoice at the salvation of people? Could they have paid a higher price? Could they have given us any more evidence that Jesus loves people? That Jesus should be honored and glorified for people? For saving people? That's why Jesus came. The salvation of souls is the glory and joy of Jesus. And church, that's what we get to take part in. We get to join our Savior and glory and joy in his church at what he's done. Not pointing at us, pointing at him and saying, wow, God has purchased this church, these people. He has saved sinners. He has wiped their slate clean, as Matt talked about. He has given them an inheritance that is unfading and kept in heaven and that will never expire. He has taken their sin and their rebellion, and he bore it on himself, and he bore the wrath of God. He was punished for them because he loves them, because he loves to display his grace and his kindness and his love to sinners. He loves to save sinners. He loves to purchase people for his honor and for his glory. And I think the reason that this passage is not a speed bump is because Paul is just joining with his Savior. Paul's heart has been changed where now he loves and enjoys what Jesus most loved and enjoys. The Thessalonians are Paul's glory because the Thessalonians are Jesus' glory. They are his bride. The work of redemption happening in sinners, happening when someone comes to believe in Jesus and have their sins taken away, and be united with Jesus, is a miracle that we should never get tired of. It's something that we should enjoy and love. It's our glory. It's what we will boast in. When Jesus comes and returns back, just like Paul, what are we going to boast in? What can we say we've done? We can point to him. We can say, look, Jesus, what you did. You let me be a part of your work in the kingdom. You let me join with you and just proclaim who you are to people. And then you did the work, and you put your spirit inside of them, and I saw their lives be changed. I saw them believe in you and reject the lies of Satan. And now they're standing with us in glory. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. That's, I think, what Paul was getting. For Paul, there is no contradiction to say, disciples are our crown of boasting, glory, and joy. No contradiction at all. Because Jesus is his crown of boasting, glory, and joy. So church, now what about us? So I was thinking about this this week and praying and considering. I recognize that this is a speed bump for me because I don't really believe this yet. I'm not sure if I could say with confidence that disciples that I get to take a part in are my crown of boasting before Jesus or all my joy and my glory. And I think that's why I kind of bumped up against it. I think it was God's kindness to say, you don't believe all the way yet. 
I'm working in your heart. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel that, like, I'm not sure if I fully get it, if I fully align, if I feel confident in saying that disciples are my joy, disciples are my glory, then I want to encourage you that we are being sanctified, even as I speak. Right now, the Holy Spirit is working inside of us, patiently bringing us along, transforming our hearts, transforming our minds, making us think more and more the way that Jesus does, and less and less like our old sinful nature self. And sometimes he changes us quickly in an instant, and I don't like anything that I used to like that is bad, and I like what brings him glory and brings him honor. And sometimes I think he patiently, slowly brings us along, just like a good father, just like a good mom, being patient with her son, her daughter. Yep, I know, I know you're tempted to do that. I know this is difficult for you. Here, let's, let's keep walking in this way. Let me keep showing you how you do this. God's transforming our hearts and desires to be what he desires and what his heart beats for. I want to remind us of something that we say often in this church, but I think it bears repeating. Jesus kept us in this world for a reason. Salvation was accomplished when Jesus rose from the grave. We sing the song, It is finished. It was finished. It was accomplished. And yet Jesus left, even his most loved disciples that were closest to him, he left them on the earth. Why did he do that? I hope you know the answer, but in case you don't, I'll remind you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is why we are left on earth. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are here for a purpose. It's temporary. It won't last forever. But we are on this planet to make disciples, to proclaim God's fame, to say what Jesus has done, to teach all that Jesus has commanded, to live and act and love like Jesus did with people around us. So, to help us this morning, I have five truths that if disciples that we make are our crown of boasting, glory, and joy, if that's true, which it is because God's word says it, then these five things, I think, are truths that can be helpful for us to consider. Okay? First one, making disciples stems from loving and knowing Jesus. Making disciples stems from knowing and loving Jesus. We cannot separate loving Jesus from making disciples. And we can't separate making disciples from loving Jesus. I've heard it said, I love Jesus, I just can't stand people. Or I can't stand the church. Well, that's false. It cannot be true. Because Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for her. Jesus loves people. He died for them. 
if we love Jesus, if he is our Savior, if he is the one that we desire to follow, to be like as our master, as our teacher, then we will make disciples. Not always perfectly. Like I mentioned, our heart is still being changed to be more like him, but we'll want to do it because he wants us to do it. We'll want to follow him because that's what he's like. If we are disciples, then our joy and hope and glory is in Jesus, who works in us to make disciples. And church, I say this next sentence to myself as much as anyone else. If we, if I struggle to live on mission, perhaps I'm actually struggling to love Jesus. If I struggle to live on mission, maybe I'm actually struggling to love Jesus. So I just ask you, are you seeking to know Jesus? Are you seeking to love him? Are you looking for him in his word? Are you talking to him? Are you asking him to change you, to show himself to you? Second truth, making disciples is all-encompassing. Making disciples is not just door-to-door evangelism. It's not just checking a box. Oh, Jesus says, go and make disciples. Okay, let me print off some tracks and start chucking them out of airplanes at people. Maybe they'll get saved. No. Making disciples is everything that we do. It comes out of us in every single way. You're making disciples when you're talking with your children, when you're with your spouse, the way you love your neighbor, the way you care for your parents. We make disciples in everything we do because that's what Jesus did. When Jesus walked on this earth, he constantly was ramming in, interacting with people, sharing glimpses of the Father, showing glimpses of himself, offering truth where lies were present, showing love where there was hatred, being bold to stand up for truth when it needs to be, but also willing to be humble, to serve others. Jesus showed others what he was like when he was on earth, and he invites us to join him and show others what Jesus is like in everything that we do. Don't separate making disciples from the other parts of your life. You're not like, okay, I'm going out, and it's time to make disciples. For two hours, I'm going to be making disciples. No, your feet hit the floor after you get out of bed. You Guess what? You're on mission. You're making disciples. Even if you're by yourself, maybe you're sitting there reading your Bible, your soul is being equipped to make disciples. You're getting contact and intimacy with the living God of the universe who wants you to make disciples. You are being equipped to make disciples even when you're not actively with disciples. Everything we're doing is making disciples because Jesus left us here to make disciples. So don't separate it out. Don't compartmentalize. We are making disciples in everything that we do, in all of our life. So I ask, do you connect all that you do with making disciples? Or is Jesus just some part of your life? It's disciple-making reserved for special times, Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, men's meeting. Number three, making disciples is a small sacrifice. Making disciples is a small sacrifice. What do I mean by that? (laughs) Well, we willingly sacrifice because it's no sacrifice compared to the joy that we have in making disciples. Compared to our glory, compared to our crown of boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, redeeming a people for himself, transforming hearts and lives, 
the joy that we have, that our joy rests in the disciples that Jesus is making because it's his joy, then the sacrifice of my time, of my money, of my comfort, of my desires, for the sake of the gospel, I mean, it's, it's really small. It's really small. And it doesn't always feel small. I know that. I know sometimes it feels like we're giving up our very selves, our very lives itself. But church, let this truth sink into us. Compared to the joy set before us, compared to the glory that awaits, compared to the beauty and splendor of our Lord Jesus, who is willing to lay down and die for this church, for these people, for these disciples, our sacrifice is very small. It's very small. Fourth one, making disciples requires follow-through. Making disciples requires follow-through. I think we see this directly as Paul is dealing with the Thessalonians. You notice he didn't just huck the gospel over the fence to them for a couple weeks and then be like, okay, I hope the Holy Spirit teaches you about Jesus. If they walk away, that's their problem. I did my part. I mean, we talked about it earlier. The love, the care, the concern that Paul has for these believers, these, I mean, they're virtually strangers to him. And yet it feels like his very heart is beating with them. He desires for them to know and continue to know and to grow and to withstand persecution for the sake of Jesus. He is willing to follow through and to follow up. For, for Paul, making disciples is not just a one-time thing. It continues on. And so I think the same should be for us. Making disciples means, as, as Timothy did in the beginning of chapter 3, look with me, um, chapter 3, verse 2. And we send Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Making disciples means continuing to establish and exhort other believers in their faith. Church, that's part of what we do on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing some of the songs that we sing. We're just reminding each other. This is what's true about Jesus. Even though you're struggling right now, remember who Jesus is. I sing out so that you can hear me proclaiming who Jesus is, so that you can be stirred up by my faith as well, and I can be stirred up by your faith. So, do we go to believers that are wandering? Do we seek to engage and follow through to bring maturity and help and care and comfort to other believers who might be struggling or might be distant or might be a little bit stuck in their walk? Making disciples requires follow through. As long as we have breath, as long as Jesus keeps us on this earth, we're still making disciples, making disciples, proclaiming who Jesus is, proclaiming the gospel, telling the good news, all right, last one, number five. Making disciples is our life's work. Like Paul, can we say, what do I have if I'm not making disciples? That's really what Paul said. It's a rhetorical question. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? His point being that if it's not in the Thessalonians, if it's not in the disciples of Jesus, if it's not in the purchasing of Jesus' church, then he doesn't have joy or glory or boasting. 
And so I ask us this morning, what do we have if we're not making disciples? What are we holding on to as something for us to be boasting to Jesus at when he comes? It was helpful for me just to make a quick list. Will I boast in my house when Jesus comes? Will I boast in my obedient children who act the right way? Will I boast in retirement trips or my bank account or how many people approve of me or like me? Will I say, look, Jesus, look how many people liked me. Will I boast in anything that I've accomplished? The answer is no. We were saved for more than this church. We were saved to boast in Jesus when he returns. When Jesus returns, am I going to boast in something I've accomplished or something that Jesus has accomplished? Because one of those two is going to matter and one's not going to matter at all. And in fact, our mouth will be shut for anything that we've accomplished because we'll see them for what they are. To Paul, Jesus' mission was central. It was everything. He has no hope, joy, crown of boasting apart from his mission in Jesus. And it's because it's connected to Jesus. Please hear what I'm saying. It's not disciples, so we leave Jesus aside. It's disciples and disciple-making because that's what Jesus is doing. We're joining in with him. We're joining in with his glory. We're joining in in his joy. And when we boast at his coming, we're going to be boasting in what he has done and what he has accomplished. And what he is doing and what he is accomplishing is making disciples, church. Right now, today, it's what Jesus is doing. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's what we're called to take a part in also so that we will boast in him. That's all I have. I worked pretty hard last night of trying to think of what is a nice package I could kind of tie this sermon up. You know, you like like a tagline or a bumper sticker type of thing. And um, I don't think the Spirit wanted me to do that this morning because he didn't give me one. <laughs> Honestly, church, in all seriousness, I believe the application for us this morning is to believe God's word. I think it is to believe what Paul spoke through the Holy Spirit. That disciples and disciple-making is our crown of boasting in Jesus. That the disciples that we make are our glory and our joy because it's in Jesus. And so short of having a nice tagline or a quick you know, four-step process of what to do, I think what would be helpful for us is let's just take a moment and let's just listen. Let's be still. Let's consider what God says in his word, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. Let's ask him to bring application, to give us something maybe to do or to believe or to stop believing that's wrong. So I just have three questions for us. And so Kaylin's just going to play in the background, and before we sing the first song, I just encourage you, just be still in your heart for a moment. Let's listen to the word of God. Let's let it be at work in us, like we learned last week. Here's some questions maybe to get you started, but if something else the Spirit brings to you, then feel free to ignore these. But one I thought was, in what ways am I not believing that disciples are my crown of boasting, glory, and joy? And then, as an important follow-up, what truth about Jesus contradicts that unbelief? 
And then lastly, is the Spirit leading you to do something about it? Is God giving you something tangible that says, do this tomorrow, do this tonight? Let's just take a couple minutes together.